Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I think that's ravens? Yeah, that's the sound of ravens in the Great Bear Rainforest. Did you see any while you were up there? I definitely did. I saw lots of ravens and eagles as well. All right, so set the scene for our listeners. Tell us a little bit more about what this part of BC looks like. Sure. So picture this. You're standing beside a river surrounded by mountains. The air is warm. It's late summer. And the water is crystal clear, but also icy cold. And along the banks in the sand, there are animal tracks from bears, wolves, even cougars. It's a fairly short flight from Vancouver, but it really feels like a world away. And sounds like a majestic paradise. But, you know, before we dive right in, I should let listeners know I'm Renee Filipponi and for Laura Lynch. And this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today we're talking to journalist Brad Bedelt about a journey I'm so looking forward to taking with him even if I actually can't go. Welcome, Brad. Hi, Renee. So you went to explore a big climate idea that is being put to the test in the Great Bear Rainforest. Set it up for us. Well, old growth logging has long been a hot issue here in BC. So back in 2016, when a group of coastal First Nations agreed to halt most of the logging in their territory, it was a big deal. Uh, It's known as the Great Bear Rainforest, and in exchange for not logging it, The First Nations banked on getting revenue from carbon offsets. If you're not familiar with the concept, I'll explain it just in a few minutes. And it was a novel idea at the time in Canada, a new way to fund conservation. So here we are, seven years later, is it working? That's exactly what I wanted to know. It's a bold step that these First Nations have taken uh, to conserve their forests and slow climate change. It's also a story about self-determination and reconciliation. All right. So with that, let's hear what you discovered. Bear tracks in the mud right there. Deer tracks over there. My name is Ernie Talio. I born and raised here in Bella Coola, and I've been managing the Guardian Watchman program for the last ten years. And wolf would come right in through here as well. Um, not, not in town, but we definitely see them in the estuary and through across the river there. Um, cougars as well. It's just before noon in late September, and I'm walking with Ernie along the banks of the Bellacoola River on BC's central coast. Ernie is in his mid-50s and soft-spoken. Bellacoola is home to just over 2,000 people. It's the doorstep to what's known as the Great Bear Rainforest, a swath of rugged mountains and old-growth forests that stretch all the way from here to Alaska. Most of the rainforest is considered crown land by Canadian law, but it's on the traditional territory of nine coastal First Nations who manage and oversee it. The Guardian Watchmen are a team of local Indigenous people who work as conservation officers for the rainforest. There's a lot here for Ernie to manage. Right now, I have a couple of Guardians up in the Tweedsmere Park helping out uh, parks rangers at the viewing platform. And I have uh, three more out in the South Bentic on the Newark River working with a 
conservation group where they're collecting DNA samples from coho. So every day, every week is something different. For Ernie, the watchmen are restoring a role that indigenous people here have had for millennia. He's a member of the New Hulk First Nation, one of nine that make up the coastal First Nations. We're the eyes and ears of the nation, and that's my biggest priority is to have my guys out. Whatever projects we're working on, it's, it's just good to have that presence out there. Mm-hmm. There are coastal guardian watchmen in six communities in and around the rainforest, as well as another on Haida Gwaii off the coast of northern B.C., they do everything from helping out with search and rescue missions to conducting research on salmon. My, my, I'm really fortunate to have a really broad range of age groups from really young guys. So our youngest is 19 years old right now, and our, my oldest crew member is 55. And just to see them experience the land and uh, the places that we see and the projects that we're working on, how it impacts them, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really positive work that we're doing. The Watchman program employs about 150 people, all Indigenous, and it's administered through the Coastal First Nations. We all have uh, a connection to the land, through our lineage, through our our ancestors. My son, I had never really thought he was paying attention to what the work I was doing, and then we asked him, well, what do you want to do? We're like, I want to do the work my dad does. And that was like a really proud moment for me. Listening to Ernie, it's obvious the Guardians program is special. There's a catch, though. A big portion of the program's budget comes from an unusual source, carbon offsets. The offsets were part of an agreement that was signed back in 2016 between Coastal First Nations and the B.C. government. Before the agreement, nearly all of the land that makes up the Great Bear Rainforest was slated for logging. Now, only about 15% of it can be cut. From a conservation perspective, the agreement was big news. The protected rainforest is about the size of Ireland, and it was one of the first conservation projects in Canada to rely on carbon offsets for funding. But seven years in, it's still not clear whether the agreement is working. Carbon offset sales have been much slower than expected, putting programs like the Guardian Watchman at risk. That's a constant struggle for us. Uh, we're it's trying to make sure we have that kind of the funding in place to, to keep the keep us all employed. Um, mm-hmm. We still have to secure sustainable funding, but we hope we can secure that at some point. The question now is, is this unique model actually sustainable? Before I go any further, you might be wondering how this works. How carbon offsets can protect a rainforest? Well, it starts with the trees. Trees suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which then gets stored or sequestered in the trunks, roots, and soil. The larger and older the tree, the more carbon dioxide it stores, which makes an old growth forest like the Great Bear extremely valuable as a climate change fighting tool. Every year, it sucks up roughly 1 million tons of carbon dioxide. That's about the same as what 250,000 cars emit. And all that carbon gets stored year after year. Those trees are thousands of years of sequestration that are there in the trunk and in the roots and in the branches and in the all of the plants that live up in the crown and stuff like that, that live on, on the outside of the tree. 
That's Joseph Pallant. He's the Director of Climate Innovation at Ecotrust Canada, an environmental nonprofit, and he's based in Vancouver. He says the impact of losing these trees would be twofold. First, obviously, when we lose trees, they no longer scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And second, if they get cut, Joseph says that the holding containers for centuries of carbon goes kaput. Most of the carbon stored inside of them gets released back into the atmosphere. When you cut that down, when you harvest that, when you drive um, machinery through the soil, you are uh, releasing this productivity times thousands of years sometimes, hundreds and thousands of years. So that's where carbon offsets come in. They're essentially the business of not logging. Climate-conscious companies, governments, even people can pay coastal First Nations for the benefits of not logging the Great Bear Rainforest in order to offset their own carbon emissions. But Joseph says carbon offsets continue to face significant obstacles. I will say that uh, skepticism of offsets certainly affects the sale of offsets, the development of new projects, the ability for older projects to continue to develop. It's certainly been an ever-present aspect of this work since I started developing offset projects in 2004. Skepticism, as in a lot of people don't believe offsets, are used to fund legitimate projects. And with good reason. A report published by the UK newspaper The Guardian alleged that 90% of carbon offsets certified by one company for projects in the Amazon were fraudulent. We found that the large majority of various rainforest offsets are essentially nothing in carbon terms. They're, They're totally worthless. Meaning the projects didn't sequester nearly as much carbon dioxide as they were supposed to. There have been other similar examples. But Joseph stresses that in Canada, carbon offset projects must meet much higher standards. So if you're doing forest conservation in British Columbia, the BC Forest Carbon Offset Protocol lays out the detailed rules around how you have to design, implement, and evidence your project. Despite those controls, the skepticism that Joseph mentions, it continues to tamp down interest in carbon offsets in Canada. And that means less money to fund Indigenous programs like the Guardian Watchman. The Great Bear Agreement limited logging and changed how it's done in exchange for the money generated by carbon offsets, which takes us to another part of the struggle of making this program a success. Coastal First Nations that push for the changes aren't just conservationists, they're also home to loggers. For them, the changes have brought challenges. Not long after meeting with Ernie Talio from The Guardian Watchman, I meet up with an indigenous forester who works just outside Bella Coola. Good to meet you, yeah. Thanks for coming so early. Oh, no worries. It's, uh, it's nice. Yeah, my name is Ezra Meekum. My new Hulk name is Sinur Khlam. Uh, I would introduce myself, Yati Sinaur Sinur Khlam. I am a forester for the nation's Economic Development Corporation, uh, specifically New Hulk Forestry. Ezra is in his early 20s. He has long hair, cowboy boots, and is a big fan of country music. We visit a spot that was logged a few years ago. So as a kid, you planted here. Yeah, I was uh, 16, and uh, the Bellacoola Community Forest 
and they paid us like a thousand dollars to come out and plant this area here and part of this area. Ezra has done a variety of forestry work here, tree planting, but also laying out other areas to be logged. His father and grandfather also worked as loggers. I ask him why he thinks the Newhawk First Nation signed the Great Bear Agreement. People in our community want to see us doing what is widely known as good, right? Like, without knowing much about forestry, they can say, like, this was done with all the collaboration from all of these different nations to create something that was better than what was going on before. What was going on before were giant swaths of clear cuts across what is now protected rainforest. These days, because of the agreement, which includes the carbon offset program, Ezra says the logging areas are much smaller. Plus, there are setbacks along streams and buffers for wildlife. And so operationally, that can create a very large constraint for a forestry company. But on the other side of things, I personally find it good. Like, I, I like seeing things protected. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want to be optimistic, but I understand that change takes time, takes a lot of effort, and we are a small piece of the pie. Not everyone in his nation supports the logging constraints. It makes it harder to make a living. I think there's a spectrum. There's many folks that are very gung-ho for it. There's many people that are excited for the change. There are many folks that are a little bit more um, ten- like tentative. They're like, mm, you know, not sure how this is going to work. Like, But it, it is an ongoing thing of like trying to figure out how we can both um, do this all in a good way and still make money and still be able to contribute to our community. The Coastal First Nations office isn't where you might expect. It's in downtown Vancouver, on the 16th floor of an office building, next door to a law office. I go there on a very rainy day in the fall. Uh, I'm Paul Correa. I work as a senior uh, policy advisor for the Great Bear Initiative Society, also known as Coastal First Nations. Paul Correa is not Indigenous. For most of his career, he was a scientist and an academic. He came to Coastal First Nations, he says, because he wanted to do his part for reconciliation. You know, it's pretty neat. I met um, many of the nations some 40 plus years ago when I was a a PhD student doing some work. And... um, Seven years ago or so, I was approached by uh, the organization. How would I like to finish out my working career using some of that knowledge and resource management and salmon and um, renewable energy and, and bring that policy knowledge and work with the nations? And um, so I took a job here and it's been absolutely amazing and delightful. Paul says that carbon offsets were an important part of the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement. The revenue from offsets was expected to make up for the economic impact of less logging. It came down to dollars and cents, how to pay for stewardship and guardians and all of that. Um, Government was saying they just didn't have enough money. But out of the changes in forestry and land use, the consideration was, well, just could could there be an offset generated that would help pay for these? The revenue from selling carbon offsets not only pays for the Guardian Watchman program, it's also used to fund other community projects like housing for elders. So I, I think when the idea of offsets uh, came about, everybody was excited about, yes, we can tap into this. Yes, the change in the annual allowable cut 
reducing it will create this delta. That should be offsetable. That should lead to the marketplace coming for Great Bear rainforest offsets. But in the seven years since the agreement was signed, carbon offsets in the Great Bear rainforest have been slow to catch on. Paul says there are a few reasons why revenue has been lower than expected. Offsets are sold on an open market, so competition from other projects can drive down prices. For Coastal First Nations, the target price for one of its offsets is about $15 per ton of sequestered carbon dioxide. But at times, other foreign projects have sold them for much cheaper. The other challenge has been lack of demand, fueled by the skepticism of offsets that Joseph Pallant described. And um, I think there was this fear, all of a sudden, these things are, are questionable. Are they truly Indigenous-led, or is it just greenwashing in that? Every year, roughly half of the Great Bear carbon offsets go unsold. That's about a $10 million loss for coastal First Nations, leaving less funding for programs like the Guardian Watchman. So far, the main buyer of the Great Bear's offsets has been the province of BC, so the government can be considered carbon neutral. To date, no other big buyers have come forward. The world didn't come aggressively and say, we need these offsets. It was very quiet. And so uh, the, the history of, of revenues generated has been uh, quite a slow take-up. I asked Paul if they can't sell enough offsets. Is more logging an option? I, I guess in a, in a careful way, I'd say yes. And this puts us at, at odds with environmental groups and others who say, well, you guys are the, 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 the apex, the, the, the key that protected old growth. Uh, I think our nations, and in, in, in that because they need jobs, they need revenue, would say, we're not necessarily going to do the kind of logging that was in the past, but um, getting revenue from the forest cover is one option. Now, I don't want this to be interpreted as that we're going to leap to logging. I think, um, I think there's been a lot of thought going into the regime that we've been operating under for the last 15 years. But as honestly as I can answer, it's, it's an option. It has to be there. New Hulk Forestry, the company that Ezra works for, is, as he puts it, a relatively small player here. There are larger corporations still logging in the Great Bear. And concerns over logging practices persist, despite the Great Bear Agreement and the offset revenue being generated. So forest companies are very good at logging to the letter of the law, but they're not very good at logging to the spirit and intent of the law, always. This is Jody Holmes. She works for the Rainforest Solutions Implementation Project. Jody has worked in the region for more than 25 years and was a key negotiator on the Great Bear Agreement. She took a kayak trip here while doing her PhD. And I fell in love with the place. And so I decided to put my, my academic career on hold and go and start working on conservation issues in the Great Bear. Jody argues that investing in carbon offsets isn't enough right now to save the big trees, which do a lot of the work when it comes to regulating our climate. While the agreement has led to less logging, it's also meant to protect old growth forests specifically. But Jody feels that hasn't been as successful. The problem, she says, is partly one of mapping. There's no database showing where the oldest trees are located, which makes it hard to protect them. We really do count on the forest industry to kind of figure out where those trees are and set them aside. I think that some really at-risk forest types are getting targeted specifically because of the economics of the area. 
For Jody, it comes down to the value of carbon offsets. Essentially, there's more money to be made from logging old growth than from protecting it. At the moment, um, carbon revenues do offset second growth logging. But old growth is so valuable, and big old growth logging is so valuable, the carbon offsets don't currently manage to kind of create enough of a back pressure there. Jody sees potential in adding on what are known as ecosystem services for revenue. They're like carbon offsets, but they're based on other benefits provided by a forest. So in Europe right now, they're paying farmers to plant trees and then monitor the temperature change that happens on their property. And they get a credit for the temperature change that happens on their their, their property. There are places in Africa and places in South America where people are getting paid credits for keeping jaguars alive and then guaranteeing that they're keeping jaguars alive. Jody believes including these kinds of ecosystem services could strengthen the business case for conserving the great bear. Those are all kinds of things that could be monetized, but we don't do at the moment. Paul Correa with Coastal First Nations sees another factor that should drive up offset values when governments start imposing what are known as emissions caps. An emissions cap means a company must cut its pollution or buy offsets to make up for it. The federal government recently announced a cap for the oil and gas sector. Korea expects BC will launch something similar. The federal liberals announced their long-promised emissions cap on oil and gas, driving a deeper wedge between Ottawa and oil-producing provinces. It is up to us as a country to make smart choices. What we're trying to get at is is reducing emissions. We're not trying to to, to burden the industry. An emissions cap will destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs. This cap is not credible at all. It allows for big oil to buy their way out of this cap. They're going to be permitted to use offsets, and the offset of choice or supplier of choice in British Columbia is probably the Great Bear Rainforest offsets because there's no other sizable supply of good offsets other than, uh, than ours. Mm-hmm. Paul also mentions that the Coastal First Nations are exploring a similar offset program for the marine environment, using kelp to sequester carbon. We are working really hard on a Great Bear Sea agreement that brings the marine in line with the, the terrestrial. And just, it's not by chance, we've been studying it. Uh, we know that kelps and seaweeds really can be a great uh, aggregator, a holder of, of carbon, particularly if they fall to the bottom and the bottom is left undisturbed. This is the sea bottom. Despite the challenges, Paul is still optimistic that the Great Bears offset model is viable and could be used by conservation projects elsewhere. Yeah, we've been approached by, by neighboring uh, nations. Some of them want to do similarly and Quite frankly, the wherewithal to do uh, something similar is still there. They're curious, they're wondering um, how it was done, and and they'd like to get on with it too. It's been slow developments, and there's a whole series of other reasons why that's been so. Uh, And so it's it's not been easy sledding for them uh, as they consider uh, doing their own forest carbon offset um, programs. But I I tend to remain hopeful. Thank you, Paul. It's been great. Thanks, Brett. That documentary was produced by freelance journalist Brad Bedelt, along with John Chipman, Alison Cook, and Julia Poggle from CBC's Audio Doc Unit. And by the way, Brad also works with the city of Vancouver, but he doesn't work with the coastal First Nations or on carbon credits in that role. 
We have time now for a couple of other climate stories in the news this week. The leader of the next UN climate conference has been chosen, and again, it's someone with deep ties to oil and gas. COP29 will be held in Azerbaijan next fall. The country's government picked its ecology and natural resources minister, Mukhtar Babayev, as president of the conference. Before getting into government, Babayev spent 24 years working in the oil and gas industry. Last year's summit in Dubai was led by Sultan Al-Jaber, the head of his country's oil company. Polar bears are under a new threat after already facing serious challenges brought on by a warming Arctic. Canadian scientists are concerned about the spread of avian flu in the species. A necropsy confirmed the disease killed a polar bear in Alaska recently. Bob Gerlach is Alaska's state veterinarian. He says migratory birds in the area have been found with H5N1. So we're making the assumption that the bear had come up onto land Uh, and had probably scavenged one of the uh, dead or dying birds and gotten exposed that way. The polar bear's body was found 500 kilometers from the Canadian border. The bear is part of a population that ranges back and forth between the U.S. and Canada. Experts say climate change is also at play by increasing the bear's exposure to avian flu. Diminishing sea ice keeps the polar bears on shore longer, forcing them to subsist on prey such as dead birds. And of course, you could read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like... What does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Renee Filipponi, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And when it comes to setting goals for the new year, eating healthier is on a lot of people's lists. But if you want to eat better for yourself and the planet, there's a new generation of cookbooks to help. When we wrote our first cookbook, Double Awesome Chinese Food, we realized that a lot of recipes are written in a way that make it difficult to use up what you have. A lot of times they kind of inspire you to go out and buy more food, in fact, when you've got a fridge full of food. And so we wanted to write recipes and help people cook in a way that helped them use the food they'd already bought and spent money on, um, rather than throwing it in the trash. That's Margaret Lee, who also goes by May. She and her sister Irene are restaurateurs who grew up in the U.S. They also wrote a couple of cookbooks together, including one called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable, zero-waste approach to home cooking. And as you can probably guess, it's filled with recipes for, say, that half a lemon you've got in the fridge, or that bag of wilting spinach, or those containers of leftovers you are so sick of eating. Probably my favorite food waste recipe is anything that involves puff pastry. If you have a little bit of, um, like, 
leftovers from a charcuterie board or maybe some roasted veggies from last night. Um, if you can just like take your leftovers and dress them up and make them seem a little bit French, um, I feel <laughs> like puff pastry can make all those things feel exciting again. And another way Irene likes to encourage people to use up their wilting produce is to get out of their comfort zone. So we have a stir-fried lettuce recipe. We have a recipe that has stir-fried cucumbers in it. They are Chinese dishes that kind of play with our expectations about how a certain vegetable should be prepared or like what texture or what temperature you serve it at. So I think when we look at other cultures and how different cuisines use ingredients, it can kind of free us from feeling like, okay, every cucumber must be crisp uh, and cold for us to enjoy it. Now, besides recipes, Irene and May also have tips on how to store your ingredients so that you're less likely to leave them rotting. So Irene installed a box in the walk-in fridge in our restaurant that was labeled the Eat Me First Box. And the idea is that you put things in it that are either on their way out, they need to be cooked soon, or you used half of it and you need to use the rest of it. And now that I have one in my fridge, I'm so much less likely to you know, lose half a lemon to the back of the fridge or forget that I had all these things that I meant to cook. They're all just right there in the front and I can make sure that I actually use them. At first, cutting down on food waste just made sense from a cost perspective. But Irene says using up what you already have is part of her and May's upbringing. So many of us are deeply programmed, um, especially, you know, uh, children of immigrants and grandchildren of immigrants to feel really bad when we throw things away. Zero waste cooking is not a new idea, even though it's like very hip and like trendy now, like that's what our grandmothers would have just called cooking. Um, you don't want to waste anything because you don't have unlimited resources to spend on raw materials. So I think for us, um, connecting with that side of like being resourceful, being frugal, figuring out how to make it work is one of the ways that we can connect to, you know, the folks in our family who made it work before us. Plus, May says using all your food is just good for the climate. You know, beyond all the resources, uh, like land, water, energy that's used to produce food, and it's really sad when that goes into the trash, I think a lot of people don't also realize how bad it is when food actually goes into the landfill. So when organic material like food goes into a landfill, it creates methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so it's nice to know that there's something that you can do for the environment that's uh, kind of as simple as making sure it doesn't go into the trash. Now, besides cutting down on food waste, you can also try to minimize the environmental impact of the things you already like to cook. Can I just take these recipes and can I make some simple ingredient swaps in order to drastically lower the carbon footprint of that dish? Matthew Hampshire Wah is a net zero consultant and the author of Climate Change Kitchen, a self-published cookbook that just came out in December. The book includes both meat and plant-based recipes. And according to Matthew, each recipe is hacked to lower its carbon footprint and calorie count. Take spaghetti bolognese, for example. So we simply switch the beef mince for pork mince. And we use some grated beetroot to add a bit of colour and a bit of depth of flavour to the dish. And in doing that, you have a 70% lower carbon footprint and 15% less fat than a traditional sort of beef mince-based spaghetti bolognese. Matthew says pork and chicken have a lower carbon footprint than beef and lamb 
because raising pigs and chicken requires less land than raising cows and sheep. Plus, cows and sheep release more methane. Now, plant-based products have the lowest carbon footprint, so Matthew suggests swapping out dairy for oat milk if, say, you're going to be making a bechamel sauce. If you like seafood, Matthew says, go for clams, mussels, and scallops that are sustainably farmed. And if you're a fan of fish... You want to go for fish that swim in big schools um, that are easy to catch because then there's, you're not burning a lot of diesel on your boat when you're going out to catch them. So that's things like um, mackerel, herring, um, skipjack tuna is okay. Um, but you want to be avoiding the, the, the species that are more difficult to, to find at sea. Um, and when you go for seafood options, always go um, uh, hand, line or pole caught, because that means that the ship is not just throwing a big net off the back of it that drags along the bottom of the ocean. And that's Matthew Hampshire Wong. And before that, you heard sisters Irene and Margaret Lee. And there are a bunch of other climate-focused cookbooks out there. But we'd love to hear your sustainable kitchen hacks. So please email us at earth at cbc.ca. Okay, now if learning is one of your goals for 2024, our next story is for you. It was kind of like this mind-shattering experience where I'm going, oh my gosh, there's a solution. We're just not considering it in Western science the way that we should be, which honestly made, for me, my other courses less depressing because I was hearing about, like, this is unfixable. Nothing's being done. And then on the other side in that course, I'm hearing these are solutions we could have. Here's how we could implement it. We're just not doing it because this is holding us back or this is holding us back. I love her energy there. That's Sophia Slabon, a student at the University of Western Ontario. And this year, you can be a part of that mind-shattering experience Sophia's describing because the course she's talking about is now available for anyone to take online for free starting January 15th. Katrina and Sarah May, what's it like to hear Sophia so fired up about your course? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, mind shattering. Like, I, I think for me, it's like mind blowing to me that it's impacting people this way. It's really humbling because I didn't, I couldn't have anticipated its impact. And so far, it's been amazing to hear. Katrina, the course is called Connecting for Climate Change Action. Does everyone get as pumped as Sophia does about climate action? A lot of students do, for sure. Uh, listening to Sophia, I was like it's very moving to hear that. I've been a teacher for a long time and this is by far been one of the most rewarding experiences, not actually just as my teaching career, but of my whole career. Now, before we go any further and learn more about this course, can you introduce yourself for listeners? Yes, so I'm Katrina Moser and I am an associate professor at the University of Western Ontario and also the chair of the Geography and Environment Department. Sarah May? So I just told you in Anishinaabe Mwen that my name is Sarah May. Well, I told you my Anishinaabe name, but my English name is Sarah May. I work at Western University 
as curriculum and pedagogy advisor in the Office of Indigenous Initiatives. But that's not what I said in the introduction. I just said that I'm Otter Clan and a member of Alderville First Nation. And I'm from Dushkin Zeebing Territory, which is London, Ontario, which is connected to Dushkin Zeebing, the river known as the Thames River in English. Katrina Moser and Sarah May Chitty, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, Katrina, this all started with a previous course about climate change that you taught a few years ago. What did you hear from your students about that course? Yeah, so the purpose of the course was to give students knowledge about climate change, and it was taught from a scientific perspective. And uh, what I was doing without realizing it was taking my students to a really dark place, showing them all the data that we have about climate change, and then leaving them there. And uh, I had a student come after class one day and uh, say to me, Dr. Moser, I really like your course, but I am so depressed taking it. (laughs) And I was very taken aback by this. This course was not my plan, not what I wanted to do to my students. And, you know, in hindsight, it seems so obvious that if you just talk about climate change, it is depressing. And so I took a step back and started thinking a lot about how do I change this course? How do I make it different? How do I inspire and motivate my students to take this knowledge and do something good with it? So that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, Sarah May and I are here today, but this course is actually uh, the result of work by 16 people, believe it or not. It was a big team effort to, uh, to put the course together. With that big team that you brought together, how did you want the new version of this course to be different? One of the key pieces to this was we really felt like we needed a different perspective, a different way of looking at the problem. And so what we did was take a two-eyed seeing approach. We braided together both Euro-Western science and Indigenous knowledge to really give a very different lens to see both the problem and look for solutions. And Sarah May, then from your perspective, what made you want to be a part of this team that reinvented the course? For me, what was exciting is the question of what can it look like to indigenize curriculum and pedagogy collaboratively with non-Indigenous and Indigenous collaborators? What does that actually look like, but also where there are tensions and giving our students the skills to also unravel those tensions themselves, because that's not easy either when you're presented with new world views that you haven't been exposed to necessarily. So two-eyed seeing, like Katrina said, and that's Elder Albert Marshall, who's Mi'kmaq, coined that idea, but that was a true gift for us to like bring that lens into the course as well. Now, obviously, the focus of of this course is climate change and climate change action. Katrina, that is a huge topic. So where do you start? We start by talking about ways of knowing that the climate is changing. And that's where we introduce students to scientific method and Indigenous knowledge. And we really think about the different spheres of the Earth and how they're connected to help students understand the carbon cycle. And then we go on to talk about you know, why is the Earth's climate changing? And, you know, a real simple answer, well, we're burning fossil fuels and we're clearing land, but we kind of delve deeper. And again, this is really coming from Indigenous perspectives. And we talk about colonialism and capitalism as being the main drivers. 
And then we look at emissions and think about who's responsible and try to think about everybody's role in uh, climate change. And we talk about what are our options? What choices do we have? And then we talk about action. What can we do to make things better for the future, for our, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren? And then we get people to make a pledge and tell us what they're going to try to do to make a difference. And it's quite moving. We just had our first cohort finish and reading through some of the things that people plan to do. It's really heartening. I always tell people I've been studying climate change now for almost 30 years and I, I too was becoming depressed because you kind of hear the same thing over and over again and feel like nothing's happening. But I, I really feel like we're on the cusp of seeing things change in a good direction. Now, Sarah May, how important is it for you that the course can help students understand Indigenous-led climate action, you know, things like the resistance to pipelines? To me, that was the crux of it is I often saw what was missing because I come from a journalism background. So I especially look at the media and the way that climate change is portrayed and the way that Indigenous peoples' resistance to extraction projects such as pipelines are portrayed and those connections aren't made. We have these teachings that are innately tied to the land, like climate change in southwestern Ontario, for example. Like like I'm looking around, I live in London, Ontario, and we've barely had any snow. And I'm thinking of our maple relatives who need that deep, deep freeze to create that maple syrup that is like so crucial to so many of our teachings. And uh, I'm thinking about my strawberries that I just transplanted poor things, they were like blooming a bit a couple weeks ago. And I'm now I'm really worried about them. Our ceremonies are tied to these things. Our languages are tied to the land. And so I've often said in my own teaching that when it comes to things like colonization and settler colonialism in particular, imagine that your entire world that is around you, that has shaped who you are, how you understand, how you come to know everything about yourself has completely been shifted and altered without our consent, without us at the table, without us saying, hey, well, what about these relatives that live here in this forest that you're about to clear cut? It's an intricately tied ecosystem and we have to respect those relationships. And so bringing in that lens to the course of being like Indigenous people who are protesting pipelines aren't doing it because we're standing in the way of progress. We're doing it because according to our teachings, we have a responsibility as humans that can have this massive impact. And that if we're not careful, if we don't abide by our teachings of respect and reciprocity and understanding the roles and responsibilities of everyone in an ecosystem and honor that, that it's going to not bode well for us and it's not going to bode well for others. Definitely perspective, Sarah May, that you often don't hear in, in courses like this. Um, let's hear another clip from Sophia Slabon, the very enthusiastic environmental science student we heard from at the beginning. Well, I'll be honest with you, I changed my whole degree based on this. Again, I was just so used to hearing these depressing, like, we're never going to fix anything. Fossil fuels are going to ruin our planet. And it was like a breath of fresh air to be like, there are solutions. I feel like she could be motivating for, for any student to get pumped about what they're learning. But Katrina, have you had other students totally shift their focus after this course? Yeah, we have. Another really rewarding thing for me is that a number of international students have commented on feeling like they have a uh, more of a place in the course. 
And I think one of the things we really strive to do is make sure that every voice is heard at the table and that we've created a space for good conversations about climate change, about reconciliation. Within the Coursera version of the course, it's pretty evenly spread from 18-year-olds to 80-year-olds, which is unusual for Coursera courses. Just just so our our listeners are are clear, that the Coursera course, that's a free online version uh, of the course that, that is being offered. Yes, yeah. People in that course, many of them are already in careers, Uh, you know, engineering, policy, health. They also are saying things about, well, I see ways I can change how we're doing things, for example, in my engineering consulting company. Or I can see ways that I can make what we do in health more sustainable and contribute to reducing climate change. Now, Katrina, we spoke with one of the students who took the very first free online version of the course on that platform, Coursera, this past fall. Let's hear from Paul Seal from London, Ontario. One of the best surprises in the whole course was learning that one of my daughters had independently signed up for the course, which we discovered meeting up for coffee at a local farmer's market. And that was really cool. And I think for one assignment, It was an intergenerational interview, so I asked her consent to interview her. You know, I'd wanted to talk to a young person. My generation didn't get it. You know, maybe a whole other generation in between didn't get it. And now we see young people really getting it. And Sarah May, that's a a delightful coincidence. Uh, But Paul talks about the younger generation really getting the urgency of climate change. Why did you include intergenerational interviews into this course? I'm really glad you asked that question and I might get a little emotional talking about it because I was at the beach with my friends and and her mom and uh, Gail Sands and she recently passed away so that's why it's a little emotional for me and we were at the beach and she was just talking about how much hotter the sun is nowadays because she grew up on Walpool Island with Kajwanong and they used to swim in the little lake and then there was like a shed with like a tin roof and they would, you know, jump in the water and then they would get up on the roof and they would warm up because it would be cold. And she's like, you could not do that now. It, like the sun is hotter. Then I just started having this conversation with her about like, what was it like when you were growing up and how have things changed? And that conversation really stuck with me. And I just was like, how can we bring this into this so that people can have that same revelation that same understanding that you know like they might not have thought to ask their grandparents or their parents and i i think about the youth in my life right now that are growing up without a winter in southwestern ontario i'm 33 years old i grew up in the 90s and there were like yes i know i was like little so you know things might have seemed bigger but like the snowbanks were huge and we had winter like from october to like march april and now, you know, we've got these littles that are growing up. They don't even really know what a deep freeze is. You can barely even ice fish in southwestern Ontario anymore, you know? And I, I think as humans, our memories can be really short. It, I think if you just stopped for a second and spoke to people of a different generation, especially those that are older than you, if you can, then you might start to understand, you know, things are changing and we're a part of that change, you know? Sarah May, it really reminds me of a conversation I had um, with my great uncle, 
over a decade ago. He was 105 at the time, and he grew up in Vancouver. And, and he talked about how much snow there was there back in the 1920s, how on 4th Avenue, a main road, he used to be able to sled down all the time, all winter. Um, and obviously, that's just not something you know in we've Vancouver. seen in recent years. In Vancouver, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's exactly it. Our impact has been so monumental that we've changed weather patterns that have existed from my understanding, from the stories that I know, our ancestral stories that have been these patterns for for centuries that our peoples have relied on for survival. Let's talk about the solutions then, because this course is really about action that people can take. And students also work in groups in the course to come up with ways that they can use their unique abilities to contribute to climate solutions. Let's listen to Paul again. I'm a lifelong environmentalist and I have a a kind of light footprint. You know, I ride a bike all year. I'm mostly vegetarian. I shop at organic and waste-free stores. I mean, I bring my own bags, so many reusable bags, right? So for me, I think the big one was connecting for climate change action. It was thinking about, am I using all of my influence to its best effect? You know, I have ties in the community. I have a little tiny bit of influence or sway in the nonprofit sector. So am I connecting all of us in this desire for climate change action? Katrina, how else do you see students using their strengths to take climate action as part of the course? Just listening to Paul, um, I mean, that's exactly what we hope for with the course is that people will come away wanting to make those connections and building relationships and working together to contribute in whatever way they can. I think people are finding all sorts of different ways to contribute. We talk about what is your gift? What can you bring to the table? People in the health industry have ideas. Somebody who is uh, working with uh, cities in Ontario talked about how they want to motivate and educate their clients and go beyond just electrifying the city fleet. There's quite a few older people, retired people, who talk about, you know, connecting with their grandchildren, connecting with their children and thinking about things they can do. Somebody talked about meatless Mondays with their neighbors and their teenage sons. So, I mean, the sky's the limit, really, in what people choose to do. All right, Katrina Moser and Sarah Mae Chitty, thank you so much for your time today. Thank, thank you, you so for much having for having us. It was really, was really fun to talk about the course. And if you want to register for their free online course, you can do so until January 11th. To find out more, search online for University of Western Ontario Connecting for Climate Change Action. At What on Earth, we bring you a world of climate solutions. So I want to introduce you to someone with an idea about how to make the very rich pay for those solutions. So I'm Nicolas Siegrist. Um, I'm the president of the Young Socialist Switzerland. And the group he leads, the youth arm of Switzerland's Socialist Party, has a proposal. We propose to make a new tax on inheritances of really rich people starting from 50 million Swiss francs, which is about 70, 80 million US dollars. We propose this new tax so that we can finance the climate transition in a socially just way. So we propose to get the money from those who have really 
made a profit in the last years, also in the years when the levels of CO2 really went up. The wealth tax would bring in about 6 billion Swiss francs each year. That's the equivalent of 9.4 billion Canadian dollars. And that money would be used to fund climate investments. For example, housing that is both green and affordable. Their proposal is a type of referendum called a popular initiative. This is where citizens come up with an idea for a new law. They've already collected the 100,000 signatures needed for the proposed law to make its way to Parliament for a vote. That can take many months, and even when it happens, the odds of it being turned into law aren't great. There are several initiatives each year which are voted on, but most of them get rejected. Um, sometimes it's close call, sometimes it's really clear from the beginning. But the tool of the initiative does have some changes or effects even before that. Because if the parliament discusses a specific subject, a specific initiative, it has the possibility to make a counter-proposal. So I hope that we'll start a discussion on the question of who's going to finance investments into clean power and so on. And even if our initiative would be rejected in the end, maybe um, it will have effect on other processes, on laws and so on. And popular initiatives have made a difference by turning climate action into Swiss law before. In 2019, citizens came up with the so-called Glacier Initiative. Which wanted to write the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement into the Constitution. And then the Parliament made a counter-proposal, which was a bit less radical, but it was um, easier for the majority of the Parliament to accept. Something called the Climate Innovation Act was passed instead. It made net zero 2050 targets into law, but fell short of banning the use of fossil fuels by that same year. So, for Nicola, the inheritance tax proposal is worth it to get big ideas on the minds of politicians by raising other questions about climate change and multi-billion dollar wealth. You still have to ask the question, okay, is a future, a climate future compatible with fortunes in those dimensions? Isn't it time for us as a society to say, okay, if we want to survive as a species, if we want to empower um, groups that have been marginalized and which feel the effects of climate change even more. It's also time to dismantle the power of those with huge fortunes. And I think this question has to be asked. It's a question popping up in other countries too. A European initiative called Tax the Rich was founded by people from Belgium, France, Austria, Denmark, Hungary, Germany and Finland. The group proposes a European wealth tax to provide international support on climate change. And French President Emmanuel Macron has called for an international tax to pay for climate adaptation in less wealthy countries. There's also growing research making a case to tax the ultra-rich to pay for the impacts of climate change in countries bearing the brunt. According to an Oxfam study, the world's richest 1% are responsible for double the CO2 emissions of the poorest 50% of the world's population. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Carolina DeRyke. I'm Renee Filipponi. Laura Lynch is back next week. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.